Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 29th, 2015, and my guest is Daniel Sumner, the Frank H. Buck Jr. Distinguished Professor of Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of California at Davis. Dan, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. Our topic for today is agriculture and particular government subsidies and involvement in agriculture, particularly in the United States at the federal level. Uh, when did subsidies of, of, of a serious kind begin, and um, what are some of the variations in how different crops are treated over time? Yeah, and, and like every uh, simple question, is, of course, the answer is complicated. And in one sense, agricultural subsidies go back you know, in, into the dark ages. But uh, here in the United States, uh, the major farm programs, what we identify now as farm programs, really started in the New Deal. There were a few things prior to that uh, here and there. But, but the big farm subsidy program started with the New Deal, and they were part of uh, Roosevelt's efforts to deal with the Great Depression. Uh, some of those, interestingly enough, were declared unconstitutional originally, along with some of the National Recovery Act programs for industries. They came back with the farm pro- programs, tweeted, uh, tweaked them a little bit around the edges, and those are roughly what we've had in place ever since with an evolution of changes. So at the time, uh, agriculture was a more important part of the U.S. economy, both in employment and in uh, uh, significance for, for, I think, local economy effects. Um, the worry at the time as far as I understand it, was that farmers were broke, prices were low, uh, they couldn't pay back their loans, banks couldn't get the money that they needed to use for other purposes, and that this was a very bad situation, and therefore the Roosevelt administration was trying to get prices up originally. Wasn't that the the goal? That's right. And and in fact, the reason I uh, tied this to the National Recovery Act uh, in manufacturing, it was that agriculture was roughly the same size as manufacturing. Uh, they were both big chunks of the economy. Agricultural uh, incomes were low, and at that time, farmers uh, tended to be poor people uh, relative to the general urban population. So agricultural incomes, even in normal times, so to speak, were below average for the average American. And so part of the idea there was we're not only helping uh, an industry that's in trouble – we're helping uh, – the idea was we'll try to help a number of relatively poor people out on the land. So, and, and one way to do that, you'd say if you were to ask the farmers what's the problem, they'd say the problem is prices are low. Well, so what's the solution to low prices? Uh, pass a law and raise prices. And, and it wasn't quite that simple, uh, but that was the core idea. So the, one of the more famous things uh, was that they, they – uh they went and killed some pigs and took them off the market so that the price would be higher than it otherwise would be. Uh, is that Was that an extensive program that went for a while? Um, 
Or was that common with other products as a way to get prices high? Well, that was a small part of it, really. But but let me say there were uh, smart people and good economists working on this in in the sense that they said, all right, we've got the price of corn is too low. We'll pass a law to raise the price of corn. But we know that uh, that'll get more corn production. Part of the problem for low prices is some people say we've got too much corn, so let's raise the price by law. But uh, and the government will take some stocks if they have to, but at the same time we'll simultaneously require farmers to leave some land idle. Well, that's the more humane version of killing some baby pigs, I suppose. But the idea is then for for corn, we can leave some land idle, and we'll do that for wheat and soybeans and some other crops as well. Uh, for livestock, there was pouring out some milk and killing some baby pigs. That was relatively temporary, uh, you know, a, a season or two at most. And then the rest of it was was holding back uh, production before it ever ever was produced through a series of restrictions, uh, all coupled to uh, legislated prices. Now, when you say legislated prices, did they just pick a certain price level and said all prices a, a minimum? That all, so, all so, corn has to sell at a certain price. So, so Congress said, and this is the, uh, historically uh, the outdated or outmoded concept of parity. But uh, people said, "Gee, when was the last time uh, farmers generally were doing pretty well?" Well, we won't count World War One because that was an odd uh, time. But uh, if we take the period from 1910 to 1914, that was sort of normal and farmers were doing fine. Uh, we'll call that the parity price. So they will then raise the price of farm products back to the way where they were during that period compared to the overall price level of things that farmers buy. So that gave them some notion and they could say corn ought to be a dollar a bushel. That seems like a fair price. This is the legislature advised by USDA. So we'll make the price of corn a dollar a bushel. Now, any, anybody that thinks about markets for a few seconds says, but there's lots of different kinds of corn and varieties of corn. And corn's at different, corn at different locations. Uh, corn in the middle of Iowa is a little different product than corn right on the Mississippi River, for example. So they then had to have a whole configuration of prices. And we still do a bit of this, not so much. A whole configuration prices by grade and quality and type and location. And somebody had to set that grid together after Congress said the average price, the national average price of corn has to be a dollar to take just a number at random. So you said somebody who thinks about markets for a minute. I think about markets for a minute. That would not have been my first choice, Dan, uh, to worry about because uh, ah, well, I would have said there's two kinds of corn, maybe yellow and white. But I, I, I take the point. There are many more kinds yeah. than two. But but the first thought I have as an economist is uh, it's great to get high prices, but who are you going to sell it to? And, of course, if the market price of corn is 75 cents and you mandate that it's going to be a dollar, uh, you have two problems. One is, as you said earlier, farmers are going to try to sell to make a lot more corn than they did before produce a lot more corn, but also buyers are going to buy less corn. So what good is that price if I can't find a buyer? So I'm sure they figured right. that out. Well, and, and in fact, the, liar, the buyer of last resort was the government. So the government acquired a lot of corn. Uh, and then they said, gee, this is took uh, years of evolution. 
off and on. But during the Great Depression, they had one thing and another going wrong. And then, uh, but but you're right. So the government would acquire a lot of corn. So now there's a lot of corn in government stocks. A trader uh, uh, naturally says, "Wait a second. There's a whole pile of corn there in the government stocks. That's not sustainable. They're going to be dumping that on the market pretty soon. So if you have the option, you'll hold off uh, having any storage yourself if you're uh, a company milling corn. So then the government ends up acquiring even more stocks. That's not sustainable." They require even more land to be idle uh, to hold back production. Farmers say, what am I getting out of this? I'm getting a high price, but I'm not allowed to use a third of my fields. So that evolves. It's interrupted by World War II where you're pulling a lot of resources and you've got a war effort and all kinds of things. Prices go up. So as in other areas, the Depression era uh, problems were solved by World War II to some extent. And then just like the rest of the economy, the forecasters for agriculture uh, right after the war said, we're, we're heading back to a depression. We know they were wrong when it comes to the macro economy. They were equally wrong in agriculture, but what they did in agriculture was pass a 1947 farm bill and a 1948 farm bill and a 1949 farm bill, all trying to and, – and there they sort of institutionalized this array of government stocks. Uh, government land idling requirements, government set market prices, and and various ad hoc programs together with export subsidies saying, gee, well, there's no market for it here. We'll use government tax revenue to subsidize exports, food aid programs for poor people, and a whole variety of other things. So – Long-time EconTalk yeah. listeners know I'm skeptical about the idea that World War II solved any economic problems, but let's put that to the side. Yeah. Uh, in 19 – we're post-war, so we're in the, the post-1945 period, and I, obviously the government's trying different things given the fact that they're stockpiling a lot of uh, corn. But how many – what other products beside corn had this approximate structure of a price floor – government acquiring lots of product and then trying to figure out what to do with it. Uh, so all the major grain, all the major field crops, cotton, rice, corn, wheat, uh, soybeans, uh, to a lesser extent because it was a less important crop. Uh, on the livestock side, it was primarily dairy, very little in the way of anything for cattle and hogs. And then uh, tobacco had a different kind of quota programs. Peanuts had a somewhat different kind of program, but much of sort of standard commodity agriculture. And they were a variety of other things. Let me say about World War II, for, for farming, um, lots of labor left agriculture uh, and headed to the war effort. And, and demand went up because de Europe wasn't producing, so there was a, uh, an expansion of exports of agricultural commodities. So the symptoms of low commodity prices went away. Yeah, no, I hear you. But, but in fact, uh, and, and so just like the macro forecasters, the agricultural forecasters perhaps reasonably said, as you're saying, World War II didn't solve any problem. What it did do was relieve these symptoms for a little while. We're going to have the same problem when we come back. And, and to anticipate, there was a series of sort of limping along with ad hoc measures every few years uh, trying new things all along with government expenditures going up and down. 
And one thing that's a little different about farming than much of the rest of the economy is the weather is so big, so big, so that the corn crop might be 20% higher one year than the next year. And, and so that occasionally you'll get a drought and from the government program point of view, oh, gee, that solved our problem. <laughs> Prices went up. We didn't uh, have to buy. Stocks go yeah. down. We limp along. The next farm bill said, gee, I guess things are okay. And, or, and it doesn't have to be a drought in the U.S. You get a drought in Europe or you sure. get a drought in Asia and, and markets are high or the exchange rate moves and, and exports boom and that solves the problem. And we've got – we have those periodically off and on. Um, as the decades proceed into the 1970s, where there was a, uh, a great uh, furor of food prices, there really was uh, a huge spike, a spike in global commodity prices. Going into the 1980s, um, there was an attempt, and they went back into the late 1970s, Carter administration time, raised all the price supports. There was a lot of inflation going on. Uh, the 1981 Farm Bill uh, said this isn't going to work and tried to start lowering some of these supports. And we go into what's really a modern era uh, starting in the 1980s of trying to unravel some of these programs so let's, let's and stick, change their nature. I want to stick with the post-war to 1980 time because right. uh, I never thought about this. Uh, is the USDA running the storage facility? Who's, who's actually implementing – the storage of corn before it's, say, exported overseas or given to poor people or whatever they tried to do with it. This, this is a lot of stuff. This isn't just yeah. – it's a lot of crops. Uh, who ran that program and how was it – what were the costs yeah, of it? And- there was something called the Commodity Credit Corporation, which is a wholly owned government organization, still exists, sometimes called the CCC, which is a New Deal sounding yeah. acronym, and it was. Um, and, and that uh, a corporation run by USDA – bought corn, just went out and, and acquired corn through a complicated loan process. They would loan money to a farmer at harvest time or actually well before harvest at planting time based on a price guarantee at harvest. If the farmer uh, uh, decided not to sell or had a price below that loan rate, uh, uh, the farmer had the right to turn that corn over to the government, which they did. And the government owned warehouses, but they also contracted with private people who had warehouses. Uh, they did this for, uh, in the case of milk, the government didn't, didn't buy milk, raw milk from the farm. They uh, promised to buy cheese yeah. and butter and dry milk powder so that we had, outside of Kansas City, um, caves full of government-owned cheese at one point, as well as piles and piles of dry milk powder. It's good for the rodent population. Um, the, the problem with cheese is it has such a high fat content that it may well catch on fire. So we had burning vats of government cheese, if you can picture it. Fondue. Uh, we call it fondue. It don't, don't, yeah. don't be there negative you go. about it. Exactly. Um, uh, and I have to say something about milk. Just and We're not going to get into milk because yeah. we could spend, I'm sure, more than an hour on milk. Yeah. The, the, um, the way the government treats milk is complicated both – in itself, and it has their regional differences and state differences. And I just have to mention that I once saw a hearing on this, and I was paying it on TV, and I was paying attention for a while because I thought this will be good for my class. I'll, I'll just get the basic microeconomics of this, and it'll be a good good 
exercise and analysis for the class. And I realized very quickly that was impossible. And even after reading about it for a while, I couldn't figure it out. And I, I suppose there was some deliberate aspect to the opacity of the milk uh, order program. But the high point of this, and which made it all worthwhile, is one of the uh, senators asked the milk person why milk was treated so differently from every other product. And there was an awkward silence. And, of course, the real reason is because of politics, and we're going to get to that in a second. But the person had to say something. He couldn't just say because I'm politically important or my state's politically important or whatever it was. So he said, well, milk's special. And the senator who was not from a milk state said, well, why? And the witness had a problem there. He had to think of something. So he said, well, milk's bulky. And I thought (laughs) – I don't even know what that means. Uh, milk is bulkier than what? Uh, so uh, milk is special. Uh, if you want to say anything about milk, you may briefly. I'm, I'm going to say 30 seconds <laughs> about milk. Yeah, go uh, ahead. What you're describing is a marketing order system yep. that still exists. It's been um, uh, cut back in lots of ways. The price support program for milk was finally eliminated. That is, the government set minimum prices for milk. After, frankly, not being very important for for a decade because the government guaranteed price was well below the market price, they finally pulled the plug on that and the export subsidy for milk in the spring of 2014. Wow. What they came back with, uh, we can talk about uh, in a few minutes because okay. it's, it's a part of this overall risk management uh, uh, configuration that the current farm program. Yeah, we're going to come. We're going to. I want to get to that at the end. Uh, Greg Page, former CEO of Cargill, was our guest on Econ Talk recently and talked about the virtues of the farm bill from Cargill's perspective. I suspect, and I'll be interested in your take. But let's just summarize the 1950 to 1980 period. The thing I want to I want to look at is uh, what I would call the polit- the political economy. Who are the winners and losers from these programs, and uh, what 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 was the political uh, alignment that that sustained these transfers to to the farm uh, states and the farmers. And, and, may, and my last point, I'm sorry, just yeah. important to remember. I think most people, when they think about farming, think of uh, Grant Wood and and uh, American Gothic right. and a person in overalls with a pitchfork and maybe um, a scythe. And that's a really um, romantic view that is not true. So go ahead. Yeah, and it uh, really was never true. Um, the, the, uh, these farm programs, if you'll remember, were begun for two reasons, I would say. One is farm, pe- farm people on average, people that made a living farming, were on average poorer than the average American. And at the same time, because we're talking about a program that raised the price uh, in an attempt to raise the profitability of farming, if you produced a lot, you got a lot of subsidy out of the deal. And in that sense, it was an industrial policy. So the bigger the farm, the more benefits. And that was on purpose. You were trying to raise the price of corn. It doesn't make much sense to do that for people that produce a little bit. Um, uh, so, so that inherently meant that the biggest beneficiaries were the biggest farms. It sort of had to work that way. And it was given the structure of the program. And it was never a part of – uh, our relief for the poor programs, whether it was uh, modern food stamps or SNAP programs or whether it was uh, uh, welfare or negative income taxes. 
The second thing to say is that while farmers were poor in terms of income, they always tended to have wealth in the sense that they, uh, they tended to own some land. Most people owned almost nothing, and, and they tended to have some equity. And so, and so part of this, and, and that becomes important because if you think about, I raised the price of corn. Uh, there are lots of people that are willing to grow corn. Uh, what's the inelastic, using the economics jargon, what's the inelastic resource? It tends to be the land, not the people. Doesn't and respond that easily. You it, can't get a lot more of it when it gets expensive. It, that's right. And so you can move it across crops. And yeah. so if you make the, the subsidy really high for corn, you'll get more corn and less soybeans uh, or more wheat and, and less barley. Uh, but that depends on relative subsidy rates. And as long as you're subsidizing the whole configuration of crops that, say, may apply in Iowa or, or, or Kansas, uh, you will raise the price of land. Now, that has two effects. One, it makes the people that own that land wealthier. That could be grandmother. That could be your cousin who lives in Chicago. Uh, the, the farmer who's out there farming the land, say, renting everything he farms, um, gets essentially nothing out of this. He has higher total revenue and higher land rental costs. It's a wash for him. So the bolt, uh, to the extent that these things get uh, turned into rental rates uh, for the for the the resource that's most inelastic, uh, those are the beneficiaries. Now we know that's a long run solution. We know that that's the way it ends up in equilibrium. We also know that there are people that are particularly uh, good at growing corn, and they benefit their human capital. Their their talents are rewarded in that way. And we know that markets uh, don't adjust uh, uh, immediately and costlessly, at least not things like land rental markets, for example. So, so there are some beneficiaries in, in the transition among current farmers. But those folks are located in particular states. That's, that's right. And now, let's say this. Uh, landlords are uh, located everywhere. So, in fact, one of the favorite pastimes of, of some advocates who don't like farm programs, uh, they love to find the zip code in Manhattan uh, <laughs> that's wealthiest and, and find that, in fact, wealthy people in Manhattan also own farmland. Or here in California, they find uh, somebody that owns a thousand acres of cotton land who lives in San Francisco. So there are plenty of, of people. I have friends that teach at Iowa State University, their zip code is Ames, Iowa, and they own farmland in Iowa because they have realized this is a pretty good investment. So, so landlords, no matter where they live, gain, um, and, and farmers uh, gain to the extent that they own something that can't be easily reproduced, and land is one of those things. And most farm, I, I should be clear, most farmland is owned by active farmers, or their grandmother, and so most of the beneficiaries of these uh, programs have traditionally been people in the business. But the dramatic um, losers of this program are you and me, who pay uh, more for and taxpayers uh, Ta generally. Ta people yeah, who taxpayers eat corn. generally, and and to some extent, um, uh, consumers. Right, people who eat and corn. <laughs> people who eat. Uh, and and that's a mix because if to the extent that you stimulate extra corn, uh, which is sort of marginal in all of this, you uh, people who eat a lot of corn, in typically in the form of hamburger or pork chops, um, benefit because they may be a little bit cheaper. 
And in fact, one of the controversial things that you know, Russ, is that people who who think that Americans are some people think Americans are fat because we've subsidized products like corn. It turns out the facts don't fit that story at all. Uh, in theory, it could be true if if a corn makes you fat because you eat it in the form of hamburger and hamburgers make you fat, then making corn cheaper could make hamburgers cheaper, which could make Americans fat. Turns out the facts don't fit that story very well. But, well, but yeah, I'm confused about the first thing you said. It seems yeah. to me that if um, – and, and corn goes – is part of a hamburger because cows eat corn, right? That's, that's right. the – just for those um, – yeah. I'm drawing yeah, on my great agricultural background, um, which I'd have to say – I have to go back at least to the 19th century in my family, and even then, it's probably not true. But anyway, although my dad did go to Iowa State in uh, 1956, 57 for a master's degree in statistics and in yeah, psychology right. and statistics, um, the wonderful statistics, place, yeah, particularly in the 50s. Correct. Um, so, I would think that minimum. There are different ways to subsidize stuff. Uh, the usual way, the standard way, does make things cheaper. But the way we did it with agricultural products made it more expensive. So it's, I would think, my first thought would be that if you put a minimum price on corn, that's going to make corn more expensive, feed for cows and pigs more expensive, pork and hamburger more expensive. Not good for anybody, whether you eat corn or its output yeah. uh, products. True or false? Uh, there was a transition, and we'll get to that, where we decided not to hold – uh, set the overall market price, but we decided to set the price for farmers high and uh, did that with government tax money to allow the price to be low. So let me let me transition quickly to that because we occasionally did something called deficiency payments. And in fact, that was the, the last 40 years of the programs or uh, 30 years anyway, that was the program that we used most. And that was a case where we said, Rather than the government mostly building stockpiles, we'll mostly make – write a government check to farmers. So the other uh, thing about farm programs was that farmers would go to the mailbox to get a government check, and that was of this form. Uh, rather than the government saying, I will buy your corn, the government said, I will set the market price for corn, but I will uh, enforce that by making up the difference between the government set price – and whatever the market ends up being. So Cargill, for example, could buy corn at whatever the market clearing price was, and the government made up the difference in a direct payment to farmers or a deficiency payment, it was called, to farmers. So that's more like and a traditional that's, subsidy. That's right. And so that's why you could end up having uh, uh, a low price of corn to consumers and a high price to farmers and stimulate additional production that way. Yeah, I uh, the background for all this, of course, is my favorite Hayek quote, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. So some of this was, I think, designed to be complicated on purpose, but I'm sure some of it got more complicated just because of all the responses. And I have to tell you, Russ, uh, uh, my favorite story in all this, back when I was a kid, I was a young professor at North Carolina State. I ran a conference. I brought in luminaries of the agricultural policy economics world. And I invited some local agricultural um, commodity people. A man named Norfleet Sugg came. He was the executive vice president of the North Carolina Peanuts Association. Wonderful guy. Uh, 
he said to me, in fact, he stood up as this conference was ending and he said, let me tell you about the peanut program. There's only two people in America who understand how the peanut program works. <laughs> it's my job to keep it that way. <laughs> and, and I took that statement, one, to be true, uh, and two, yeah. the fact that he was willing to say it out loud yeah. to us was, was a reflection of how irrelevant he thought we were. Now, yeah. I don't think he was quite right that we were that irrelevant, but, but – Close. He's in the ballpark, right. probably. Uh, this would, he would not have said that in testifying in front of the Congress. No, and, he wouldn't have. For example, the hearing that you heard. And in the old – this was – what year was this roughly? This was in the 1980s. So there's no video – there's no YouTube of this that, that went viral that humiliated him and forced him out of no. his job. Now, so. let, let me tell you, uh, I mentioned this story to an NPR reporter, a very enterprising young woman who then Googled him, found him. I had told her – look, this happened a long time ago. I told her this story maybe – four or five years ago, I said he was not a young man then. She found him. Uh, he had been in the press recently because he won an award from his local veterans of World War II uh, club. And she asked him, did you say this at this meeting in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1983? And he said, no, but it certainly sounds like me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a great old man. guy. Still a good guy. I, honest I, man. Yeah, and I wondered who those two people were who did understand it. He may have been one of them, but didn't have to. Yeah, be. that's the beauty of it. That, that's right. And that's it's exactly really right. it's a it's a point estimate. It, it may exaggerate by two the number of people who really did understand it. Just a it's just a guess, really, an expression. And, uh, and in fact, I talked to her about this lack of this uh, incredible complexity of these programs in the context of the milk marketing order program, yep. but also the current crop insurance programs that are equally opaque. I think. Well, I'm looking forward to getting to that at that toward the end. Um, I want to say one other thing uh, about uh, in the backdrop in this sort of classical period, 50 to 80, and you can I assume it also applies in the 80 to the present period, 80s to the present, which is the following: while these programs are evolving and adapting and sometimes changing somewhat, somewhat uh, dramatically. There seems to me there's two things going on in the background in the industry itself, and I'd like you to comment on whether those two things are just uh, going along at the same time or whether they were caused uh, by these uh, political interventions, government policy interventions, and whether there's this interaction between uh, between them. So the two things that, that strike me are that agriculture over this time period uh, of, say, 1950 to the present is getting incredibly more productive – to the application of technology uh, and just knowledge. So an acre is producing more than it did before. There are fewer, many, many fewer people necessary to produce our food. And at, at the same time, and I think these two are related, there's an increasing concentration in the agricultural sector as farms get – the economies of scale get exploited and farms get larger and larger. Um, Comment about those underlying economics and how they interacted uh, with the subsidy programs to the extent you think we understand it. Yeah. So, so one, I don't think there was causation between the two, one, one or the other. That is, the farm subsidies didn't make farms larger and uh, farms uh, getting larger didn't make the farm subsidies. I think they were going along at the same time. They interact politically in interesting ways, but I don't think there's a, a clear and easy causation there. Uh, secondly, 
You're right. Uh, the other thing that was happening, the farms were getting larger. The other thing that was happening and is consistent with that is that farms were getting richer. And one thing I will say uh, that was happening in the United States, and it's partly because we allowed this flexibility here uh, within the farming sector, is that farmers were also getting better in the sense that um, it was often the case that the smarter brother stayed on the farm. Um, in, in, in what I mean by that is as the farm went from 100 acres to 200 acres to 300 acres, it wasn't just scale economies and new technology. Some of it was that, but some of it was that the managerial, the average managerial ability of farmers was going way up so that uh, rather than farmers as poor people because, uh, gee, their next best alternative is to work the factory job so the guys went off to work the factory job. It was now the case that the next best alternative was to be the school teacher or or the uh, college economics professor or the local banker. And the guys who found uh, their ability to make a living even better on the farm, and I don't mean just money. People do uh, things that they love, not just for money. But it was the case that the opportunity to stay on the – if you were talented, a good manager and a good farmer – the opportunity to stay on the farm and make a very good living was really there for you. So a bunch of very talented people stayed on the farm. And with that, the other interaction there was that that meant that they were capable of operating uh, large, sophisticated farms. And two, in order to keep those guys on the farm, uh, you had to give them that scope of opportunity. And I, con I, I contrast that with a place, for example, like Korea – uh, and Japan, to some extent, where the U.S. Army had imposed some land reform sorts of things. They had laws that said you couldn't operate more than two or three hectares. And there, uh, for the most part, the Smarter Brothers left the farm. And we had a generation where uh, farm income stayed low relative to the rest of the population. And it was partly because of government restrictions on farm consolidation. And and that didn't happen here, and it meant we now have a group of farmers. And there's probably of farmers that make a living farming. It's also a very nice part-time activity for people that are retired or, or, or do it, I won't say as a hobby because they may make some money at it, but, it, but it's a wonderful part-time activity. We probably have a million people in the United States, a million families in the United States that do that, maybe a million and a half. And then we have uh, a few hundred thousand people that make a living farming. Down from maybe 10 million um, a couple of generations ago. And I assume in recent years there's been a little bit of a comeback of smaller farms for uh, people who want to buy local, for artisan um, Boy, kinds is that of stuff, marginal. organic. Uh, yeah, that is really marginal. You know, it, it, it makes the press a lot because, uh, you know, those of us in college towns or in urban settings, uh, those are of interest to us, but it's really a it remains a tiny part uh, of agricultural production and agriculture. And you say organic, uh, the significant organic producers are, are the guy with a thousand acres of lettuce, gross revenue of uh, millions and millions of dollars who may grow a uh, hundred acres of organic lettuce because there's a market for organic lettuce and he's going to satisfy uh, whatever people want. People that grow cage-free eggs, uh, may have uh, sell. Uh, they may they may have three or four million hens. Uh, Two hundred thousand of them are cage free for that market. 
and they sell to Safeway, who sells uh, has on their shelf both cage-free eggs and, and conventional eggs. So most of what you may think of it in, in that way is um, the, the same farms that do everything else, but it's just part of their division. One division is their organic division. Uh, when it gets to local, it's a little bit different, and and there is a niche market, but relatively few people actually make a living uh, satisfying uh, the market for local, know your farmer, etc. And if you think about it, uh, other than the Embarcadero Farmers Market in San Francisco and a few other places, it's very hard to make a very good living if you're working retail, which is what you are if you're at the farmer's market. So how much does the average retail worker make at Safeway? They do okay, but in some settings, but they're not. Um, uh, the, guy, the guy that's making a living farming uh, that I was describing earlier probably isn't going to work retail. He may hire, he may have uh, a worker making $15 an hour, working the farmer farmer's market circuit as one small division of his farm, for example. So I want to go back to the politics for a minute and uh, yeah. a point associated with um, Mansur Olson. And I, and I heard it applied yeah. to farming from Gary Becker. You may have heard it from as well. And basically the point is that in countries where farmers are common uh, and where they're a large part of the population, they have no political power, which is surprising perhaps. In places where farmers are scarce, they have a lot of political power. So one example would be the United States. Um, We're talking about the post-1950 period, 19th century, a lot of people farming, didn't get much help for the government. 20th century, fewer and fewer fewer people farming, their political power becomes more important. Japan, which treats rice uh, very badly for its consumers, I think their their rice price in the price of rice in Japan's many times the world price. Of course, it's justified. It's told Japanese are told that if this is necessary to ensure the quality of the Japanese rice supply or the reliability of it, I don't think that's a very good argument. But the, politically, those power, those farmers, those small, the few numbers that they're even in the lack with the lack of consolidation you mentioned, they're very yeah. powerful politically. So, talk a little bit about that and uh, why. You know, my favorite example we mentioned before on the program is sugar. Uh, it's literally a handful of families in uh, the Dakotas or in uh, Florida that are in the sugar beet or sugar cane business, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, let's let's unpack this slightly. Um, um, uh, among sugar, sugar is uh, wonderfully well subsidized. If you like political economy stories, through trade barriers, primarily. Correct. Uh, but but quotas. In- uh, there are, are yeah, import, uh, mostly it's called a tariff rate quota now, and it's gotten more complicated, but you're right. Um, there are thousands of farms that grow sugar beets scattered across a half a dozen states. Now, uh, it's much easier to organize a thousand people than 10 million, but, a, a, but, uh, sugar is a great example where they had a, they have a program that is so immensely valuable to them, that many of those farms would not be in the sugar business. The sugar business is very lucrative. They limit entry in various ways. Uh, but it's still you still have to organize thousands of people. So this isn't a cartel of three steel companies, for example. 
Uh, it really is thousands uh, of people. In the case of dairy farming, um, used to be uh, 100,000, and now maybe it's uh, 30 or 40,000. It's still quite a – there's still an organizational effort. So there's a lot of work uh, to put together uh, farm coalitions of individual farmers who have a common interest. Uh, and it has to be big enough that they're willing to uh, – a big enough common interest that they're willing to voluntarily participate because these are not typically mandatory organizations that that um, that do the a political clout. But let me give you – sugar is a great example because if when you get to cane sugar, many, many fewer farms, uh, very few processing companies. Uh, and they have political clout uh, because they're very identifiable in the famous story of – uh, Bill Clinton being on the telephone with the Fahuls, uh, one of the Fahuls in Florida, uh, during uh, uh, some interesting days in his administration. Uh, th- there's a case where you have a major political donor, a major political player, works both parties. Had been, you know, Bob Dole was one of his friends, as well as Hubert Humphrey. Those sort of stories. At the same time, across the northern tier of states, you have thousands of sugar beet growers across dozens of congressional districts where it really is um, the, the, the senator from Minnesota could say, I've got thousands of mom-and-pop kind of farmers. Now, these are mom-and-pop farmers that have equity of several million dollars, but not hundreds of millions yeah, of dollars. Gotcha, gotcha. So there's a difference yeah, yeah. Uh, in scale. Good, good so point. these individual farmers aren't making million-dollar uh, campaign contributions, but they, in sugar especially, they're all making thousands of dollars. Of political contributions. Uh, when I worked in Washington, I remember uh, flying for eight hours there and eight hours back to have lunch in Vin Weber, a good Republican congressman in his congressional district in Minnesota at the sugar co-op because it was important for him, uh, even though he was going to vote against uh, sugar issues because he was a free market kind of guy, uh, to illustrate to his uh, to, uh, an important constituency that he cared about them. He cared about them enough to uh, have somebody from USDA, where I was working at the time as an economist, to go out and visit with him and explain how all this worked. Uh, I'm impressed. So, so, I'm impressed because usually he could be a free market guy while maintaining that sugar is different because it's bulky or whatever was the yeah, exactly, excuse he gave. And, but you know, and and he was about ready to leave the Congress. <laughs> uh, the, the but what are, what are now the now you're talking. <laughs> yeah. So uh, w- one of the interesting th- things here is is w- w- with respect to applying this idea that small interest groups can be powerful uh, if, if they can be well organized. So one thing the Farm Bureau has done in the National Farmers Union, but especially commodity by commodity, the National Corn Growers Association, the National Federation of Milk Producers, uh, National yeah, NACF, National Council of milk producers or something like that. Uh, those groups uh, really work hard to uh, elicit input from thousands of individual farmers and work together. And the ones that are most successful are the ones that uh, sort of keep it all together, so to speak. So the National Cotton Council includes cotton millers and cotton buyers and cotton ginners and cotton warehousemen as well as cotton growers. Once you get all of those together, the Washington lingo is we speak with one voice as an industry. Whatever they dif- differ about, disagree about, they settle that through within the 
within the group. And the ones that have had less political clout, surprisingly, given the size of their industries, are people like the cattle industry, where they've never figured out a way across regions and across the various groups, uh, the cowboys and the guys that run feedlots and the meat packers. They haven't really figured out a way to paper over their differences, um, to, to sort of speak with one voice. So we've in that sense, that's one rationale for why we've never had the cattle program where the government bought a bunch of meat. Uh, even the pork industry um, hasn't been able to really to keep that kind of coalition together. Now, those farmers would say, we don't want subsidies. We've seen what it does. Uh, and let me speak to that very quickly. Uh, vegetable folks don't have much of a subsidy program. And out here in California, if you talk to those people, they say, look, uh, we do okay. Uh Though we don't see that corn growers are unusually wealthy people uh, compared to lettuce growers. We don't see that cotton farmers have done a whole lot better um, than, than almond farmers, for example. And their argument is the kind of um, complications and impediments that these programs place in the, in the, in the, in the way of organization and innovation and other things – um, uh, essentially cost enough that the programs aren't worth doing. That's a debatable point, and they may sit, suit certain industries and not others. And I gave an illustration where you do want, if you want a, a successful industry that under these subsidy programs, they've got to be pretty well streamlined. At least they don't complicate the life for the guys that are trying to innovate. And and most U.S. programs have sort of gotten in the way, gotten out of the way of of uh, farm innovation, and where they haven't done that, say where they've targeted all the subsidies to the smallest farms, uh, those haven't uh, really lasted very long or been very successful. Let's talk about the international impact of these programs. Um, yeah. There's two parts to it, of course. Some products that we're talking about have worldwide markets in the U.S. Uh, output would have an impact indirectly no matter what, but there's also direct effects where the U.S. government has used the surpluses, as you mentioned earlier, in the 50 to 8, 1950 to the, to the 80s period or post-World War II, where they would, I think, sell uh, stuff abroad, making it harder for local farmers in foreign countries to make a living. Um, and in particular, in recent years, the claim has been made that the U.S. Uh, ethanol requirements – have had um, pushed up the price of corn, uh, pushed up the price of soybeans because land for soybeans and corn compete. And um, I don't know. Uh, what, what do yeah. you, there's a lot of – some are up, some are down, some are higher prices abroad, some are lower prices. Yeah, so, are, so let's um, let's leave ethanol to the side for the second, uh, partly because it's a whole other set of complex. But you're, you're exactly right. Uh, for a number of commodities, the U.S. is big enough to matter in the world market. And so both farmers and consumers can be affected elsewhere. And, and to the extent that we, say, subsidize some use like ethanol in the U.S. for corn, that raises the price of corn. That will affect the world market. And so people who consume corn directly or through uh, animal products consumption will have a higher price. And, and, and uh, that, that, that part of the program could help farmers in some other, uh, uh, other place. Uh, let's let's talk about the farm subsidies directly. The and, and well, let's talk about the more modern area era, 
where we do this through payments to farmers or other guarantees that go to farmers and allow the market price to sort of reach its own level, or where we uh, kept prices in the U.S. high but subsidized exports. We had explicit export programs, the Export Enhancement Program, the Dairy Export Incentive Program. Those are mostly gone now. But what we have kept is is things that subsidize farmers here, and there are sort of um, – the key parameter is, is the U.S. big in the world market? Well, we are for corn. We are for soybeans. We are for cotton, not so much for rice where most of the rice is produced in Asia, for example. Uh, the case of cotton is an important one, and in full disclosure, I've spent years – I spent years. It's over now. Uh, as a consultant to a U.S. law firm uh, that worked for the Brazilian cotton farmers and then the Brazilian government suing the U.S. in the WTO over precisely what you're talking about, Russ, which was the claim that U.S. cotton subsidies were big enough. They stimulated U.S. cotton production enough to drive down uh, world cotton prices enough that it reduced the revenue opportunities for Brazilian cotton farmers. The U.S. government lost that case. They lost on appeal. They lost the second time. They lost that one on appeal. Finally, the U.S. government said, gee, we want to keep our cotton program. So for about five years, uh, you and I as taxpayers paid Brazilian cotton farmers about $150 million a year just to keep quiet, a sort of WTO hush money. Uh, and finally, we settled that case here uh, earlier this year, this fall where Brazil said for a final payment, we'll not bring another case. Uh, th- so, so there's a we case all, we all remember where it was that. actually adjudicated in, in at least uh, various panels of WTO, uh, uh, what were considered uh, impartial uh, judges, said the U.S. subsidies really were. Now, cotton was a bit special because the U.S. won. When that case started, uh, cotton farmers in the U.S. were getting half their revenue in the form of checks from the federal government. So they were guaranteed prices. If, if you put it on a price guarantee basis, the world price was at 35 cents, and U.S. farmers were getting the equivalent of 70 cents, which was enough to keep a lot of land in cotton that might not otherwise have grown cotton. And secondly, the U.S. was at that time by far the biggest exporter of cotton into the world market. And cotton was a pretty – the kind of cotton we're talking about here is a pretty homogeneous product. So it, it was a pretty good argument to say that it drove down the world price. And, and you know, people could dispute that, and there was lots of economists that got involved in that, including uh, including me. So I don't want to, you know, the the cotton people were mad at me. Cotton U.S. cotton people were mad at me for working for foreigners, for example. I was trying to claim I was working for U.S. taxpayers indirectly, but <laughs> that that was not uh, a satisfying argument to them. Hmm. Uh, let's turn. I, I just want to mention. I was. I, I was going to interject there that we, of course, all remember the special uh, edition of the New York Times Sunday Magazine devoted to the Brazilian-U.S. cotton conflict. Uh, that, of course, was never published. Uh, most people listening to this program, I do have some listeners in Brazil, but I suspect most people had no idea that that kind of thing happened. And it's um, it's good to, to understand it a little bit. Uh, it's um, a little bit. A little bit uh, depressing, but good to know about. I, I want to turn in the last part of the, our conversation to this issue uh, that came up with um, 
Greg Page of Cargill, a recent guest, uh, that the farm bill that recently passed, I think it was last year, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that it really changed the nature of how we are uh, giving money to farmers. Uh, talk about what's important about that, if there is a change, and uh, what you think of the economics of what was put into that bill. Yeah. Uh, so let me mention a couple of things there. One, Cargill for years, and to their credit, um, uh, uh, opposed U.S. subsidies in general, even though uh, there was arguments that it stimulated additional production in Cargill was in the position uh, – one of their main businesses moving commodities around the world. Uh, secondly, they even opposed U.S. export subsidies, uh, and their argument was, yeah, in the short run, it may look like it may benefit us, but as a matter of fact, we're a global company, and, and we think subsidies, frankly, aren't good for agriculture in general in the world. Uh, and so they took what I think, and it's because you know they're not a publicly traded company. They can, it's easier for them. Some people argue it's easier for them to look at the the long haul without worrying about quarterly reports or anything, and and they've done that. And so I think uh, they've been, um, uh, frankly, intellectual leaders among companies um, when it came to foreign subsidies. But the big change there were, there was some, some changes in the 1990s. Uh, some of your listeners may even remember the term freedom to farm uh, uh, that was the nickname of a farm bill in the late 1990s. And the idea of, well, we're going to wean agriculture from this, su these subsidies by no longer trying to support prices, no longer trying to do all that stuff. But we'll, do, we'll as a transition, we'll make direct payments to farmers. So if they used to get uh, $100,000 a year, We'll just write them a check for $50,000 a year, and you can grow whatever you want. You used to grow corn. You know, the government wrote you a check of $100,000 a year through all this complicated baloney. We'll write you a check for $75,000 during this transition period every year. Uh, that, uh, that, and, and that program called the direct evolved into something. It changed its name from transition payments to direct payments. That should tell you something. Uh, and and then it became a $5 billion account within USDA where checks were written to people who used to grow particular commodities in particular places to say, uh, yeah, this was tied to your history. You know, we, we don't want to mess up markets. I like to describe it as a program only an economist could love. <laughs> the, the idea was it tried to be a lump sum program. It said, gee, we've got a box of money. Is that distorting we'll pass it incentives? Out to people yeah. Based on your history. Well, it was never, for lots of reasons, uh, didn't really work that way quite. But it had the disadvantage from Norfleet Sugg's point of view that it was in immensely transparent. Uh, and it's, a, it's remarkable to me that it lasted almost 20 years in Washington. So it was eliminated with a 2014 farm bill where just about every senator and congressman said – urban congressman and senator said, why are we wasting money giving these farmers money for nothing? Uh, let's require that we distort incentives to give them money. <laughs> I'm being facetious obviously, yeah. but you know that's the way anybody with economist ears heard it that way. Yeah. Uh, and and – um, what we've transitioned to is a set of programs under the rubric of risk management. Some people called the price supports risk management. It's guaranteeing that you get a fair price and saving you from the risk of having low market prices. Uh, but here what we do is we say 
on the basis of revenue, uh, prices times quantities, and in some cases even net revenues, uh, we will um, either buy insurance policies from you, for you, from private companies, or we will have the government do this through what's called shallow loss programs. Uh, you sign up. We have a program that says if you're a corn farmer, uh, uh, we'll look at the futures markets in um, February. That tells us what revenue is likely to be, and we'll let you lock in that revenue uh, uh, through a government program with a deductible like a normal insurance policy. Let me turn quickly to the crop insurance parts of these. Uh, which is crop insurance goes back to the New Deal, but it was sort of a sort of a footnote, mostly irrelevant, uh, partly for the familiar reasons of moral hazard. You insure somebody and they don't take care of their crop that well, or adverse selection. I happen to know the back 40s gets lousy yield, so I insure the back 40. Uh, both of those adverse selection and moral hazard reasons make it complicated to do agricultural insurance, crop insurance. Uh, so. Uh, premiums were high. Nobody tended to buy them. Uh, in the 1990s, we transitioned to much much higher subsidy rates with the idea – this should be familiar to people thinking about health insurance uh, – with the idea that, gee, if we really subsidize the insurance, that'll draw in more people so we won't have as much problem with adverse selection and moral hazard. And – and then we'll create an agency, the Risk Management Agency and the Crop Insurance Corporation, government-owned corporation, to run this program. But we'll, because we like privatization, we'll have private companies actually sell the insurance. So the government sets the rates, the government sets all the policy parameters, uh, but you have to buy it through a private company. And then the government pays the operations costs for the private companies to make sure that they are out there talking to every farmer, not just selling it to a few farmers that are easy to sell to. Uh, what that has meant is now 10, 12, 15, a billion dollars, depending on the year, of losses to the taxpayer for insurance, both in the form of uh, premium subsidies to farmers. Farmers have to pay maybe 40% of the pro premiums in some cases, uh, less in, in other cases. Uh, so the farmers have some skin in the game, but it's mostly taxpayers, and the taxpayers subsidize the insurance companies. And then in the case of widespread losses, the, the, the taxpayers pick up any losses that the insurance companies have. So when we had a big drought in 2012 in the Midwest. The insurance companies would have lost a bunch of money. Uh, the taxpayer provided uh, what in the jargon is reinsurance. <laughs> So the the taxpayer is the reinsurance corporation. Yeah, we're the, well. we're the insurer of the insurers. That's right. That's right. As opposed to some Swiss company or or making AIG a or, or making yeah else. making a mistake would be the other alternative. Uh, yeah, not having be able to keep so, your promises. So, in, in one sense, um, farmers are paying something for their insurance, and um, uh, it, there there are lots of wrinkles that make this lucrative. Most farmers buy it. They buy it on the basis of revenue, not on the basis of yield, so that they're insuring a price-quantity combination. Uh, and uh, so, and and how how much um, additional production does this stimulate? In some cases, 
probably quite a bit. Some cases, not so much. Uh, maybe in central Iowa where everybody's going to grow corn and soybeans anyway, uh, the effect is, ar- is around the margins. Uh, since corn and soybeans are both insurable crops, they both have subsidies for the insurance, maybe you don't change the mix of corn and soybeans so much. Uh, that's because they're both covered. Uh, if you go to a, uh, you know places where there's good insurance for wheat but not so good for barley, you encourage farmers to grow more wheat. You also still encourage uh, farmers to grow these crops in outlying areas that aren't so well suited. So I provide wheat in the Dakotas, and maybe I might not have grown wheat. Maybe that land would have stayed in pasture, but now I've got subsidized insurance, very highly subsidized insurance. So I grow additional wheat out in the Dakotas, for example. So that's what we've got now, um, uh, a variety of so-called shallow loss programs, still some uh, direct payments based on market prices, and then lots of various insurance programs. I promised you I'd tell you something about dairy. What we do for dairy is we don't run a program through a federally owned corporation. We don't have private insurance companies. Uh, The government itself uh, has something called um, uh, milk uh, uh, revenue uh, insurance that protects the farmers against the margin. So it's margin protection. And what we do is we calculate the index of feed costs for dairy farms. We calculate an index of milk prices. And what the farmer does if he wants to is buy insurance for the difference between the two at very highly subsidized rates. turns out half or two-thirds of the cost of of your dairy farm is feed. And so we offer farmers a very large subsidy on insuring the difference between those two. Uh, rather than a price support and an export subsidy and a bunch of other stuff. Is that progress? I don't know. Yeah, so here's, I guess, the, the question to, to ask about all that, which is, uh, and put a little of, of a lot of what we talked about in perspective, um, how much money are we talking about here? So obviously for an individual farmer, as you said earlier on, in the post-war period, it depends on whether you were big or small. But there is a bottom line kind of figure, at least in theory, of how much money uh, non-farmers are transferring to farmers. Uh, it's the budget of these programs. Have they gone up, down, per capita? Do we know anything about them? Yeah. So were there per about, recipient? Uh, yeah. They're, the, uh, because of these – the way these – well, one is farming. So as because there's weather and world markets, prices go up and down. And so subsidy rates go up and down. Uh, we're now at a steady state between 15 and 20 billion dollars. Um, that covers about 300 billion dollars worth of agriculture, and I re- realize uh, that's less than all of agriculture. But most vegetables and lots of other crops aren't cattle, for example, aren't a part of these programs. So we've probably got about 300 billion dollars. So what's 300 billion dollars? 300 billion dollars of what? The revenue that's being covered by these programs. So as a share of farm revenue. We're probably talking six to ten percent of farm revenue. Higher for some crops than others. Uh, still higher for cotton. Uh, probably still higher for corn and wheat. Uh, lower for soybeans, for example. It has traditionally been lower for soybeans. Now, is that a lot or a little? And here's here's one perspective to put on it is to say, if you thought of farmers. 
with a 1920s mentality. Gee, the farmer is the equivalent of a factory worker. He's just a guy out there working. The only thing he's got is his labor. Oh, well, we've got, we've got, whether you like it or not, uh, unemployment insurance and various other uh, insurances for the average worker. Um, so farmers have that. Except, remember what, these are businesses. These are businesses with equities. Uh, uh, the people that are, the, the people that are getting this 20 billion are a set of businesses with equities of millions of dollars each on average. Some of them have a hundred million dollars worth of equity. Some of them have a billion dollars worth of equity. Uh, they're eligible for these programs. And we're transferring $20 billion to this industry on average every year. Uh, for a kind of a business insurance. What's another rationale? Gee, I don't know. It, it, I've, I've written a paper uh, where I said, what are the dozen rationales for farm programs? And what I've gotten to is the baker's dozen number 13, which just says, we subsidize agriculture because we've always subsidized agriculture. And, and that's not as facetious as it sounds. That is to say, there's lots of inertia and and for a guy, say you're in the cotton business, um, it is fair to say that it's probably the case that your father was in the cotton business because a lot of these farms are handed on. Uh, I was claiming earlier to the smarter son. That these days it may as well be the far, smaller, smarter daughter. Uh, and your grandfather was probably in the cotton business. And all of you, – you've never met anybody that wasn't in the cotton business that didn't have government programs. And now Sumner and Russ Roberts say, trust me, the market works. These programs don't make any sense. Let's farm without these programs. And I have to say, Dan, a lot of these people have already hung – they've already stopped listening. But yeah. I'm sure I have some listeners out there who have been listening saying, you know, you don't know anything about the farm business. You don't know what it's like when yeah. the drought comes. You don't know what it's like to try to make your payments on your machinery when you have a bad uh, – some kind of infestation. Oh, and and they're they're going to send me an angry comment or an angry email saying I don't know anything about farming, even though I haven't said a thing yet. I'm just, in fact, you've you've yeah. told that listener that I'm on your side. Of course, I am. So go ahead. So let me let me say this: um, the, the, uh, if you're in the cotton business, you've never known anybody that was in the cotton business in the United States that didn't have some configuration of government programs. And so for you and me, Russ. To say it'll be fine, he's going to say, "I don't know what you're talking about." Uh, you know, it, it, we've never tried that. Uh, you're talking about trying something um, that, with with my living, that we've never done before. In people's and, lives who eat shirts, that's and, right, or soybeans and, or corn, whatever it is that feed the feed America, and we're yeah. playing with fire. Uh, and and so that's the argument. Now now. I will get I, – you, you can – frankly, we can go one by one if we had uh, another two hours um, and say, gee, it's not food security. It's not this and it's not that. Those, I think, are easy arguments to make. The, the, the number 13, the reason I say we've always had it is, is it is a hard argument, and I think uh, one of the arguments that is successful politically, I don't – I personally uh, think it probably shouldn't be, but is that we've had these things so long – People are really uneasy turning them off. Now, my friends in the vegetable business say, gee, I'm glad we've never had them because it'd be so hard to turn them off. Uh, so I think going across, even within agriculture, 
We can go across countries, uh, and we can go across commodities and find that there's no uh, record of success that's higher in the cotton business than in the corn business relative to, say, the cattle business or, 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 or the lettuce business or, or broccoli. So I think there are compelling arguments to say that these programs probably don't have a, um, a compelling economic argument. Uh, they have continued to have a compelling political argument, and there I think uh, uh, Mansur Olson arguments uh, uh, do apply, but I must say they do they, – they work very hard uh, – to keep their political coalitions alive. My guest today has been Daniel Sumner. Dan, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Yep. Thanks a lot. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.